0: First of all, I want to welcome all of you here. I want to welcome those of you who were here with us last night back, and those of you who are joining us today for the first time, welcome to the full day of our symposium on religious literacy and journalism. I also want to welcome our uh, online guests, people who are watching us live stream, and it's wonderful to have you with us as well. So our format for today is uh, the intention is for us to have a discussion-based set of conversations, uh, which is one of the reasons we frame this as a symposium rather than a conference. And I want to just give a couple overview outlines before I then invite our guests for the Black Lives Matter group to come forward. And we are going to keep to our schedule to allow for 90 minutes for each of these panels. So where we need to cut back on time, we'll take it out from other places. But I want to make sure that we, make, that we have the time that we uh, promise for the great conversations that are so central to this symposium. So I'm Diane Moore. I'm the director of the Religious Literacy Project and the uh, convener for this event. I want to thank my uh, dean, Dave, David Hempton, who is, I think, here somewhere uh, for his incredible support, and I also want to thank my colleague, Steve Prothero, who's also instrumental in organizing this conference and helping uh, to be a consultant for us, and the whole series of Religious Literacy in the Professions, which is a four-part series. I want to thank Bruce McGaver, who is our sponsor for this series, for his generosity for uh, offering the resources that allows us to do this project and this series. Um, And I also want to just thank again uh, our professional journalists and scholars who are here with us today. It's a remarkable honor and privilege to have you with us. So as director of the Religious Literacy Project, I just wanted to give a framework. Uh, Our speakers have this framework. I hope many of you have had a chance to review the website. Uh, We posted case study, uh, examples of case studies writings on the cases that we're going to be focusing on today. And we're hoping if many of you in the audience have read those, the point of the discussion is to shape this question of the intersection of religion and journalism around particular events, so it's not just a general conversation, but we're trying to get as specific as possible to say, what does it look like? What are the examples? And The case studies we've highlighted are rich, and so if you haven't had a chance to look at them, please do at some point, because they're uh, readily available on the website and will be as, uh, throughout, throughout the conference, of course, but then ongoing. I also just want to give a quick overview of four fundamental assumptions that religious studies scholars share about the nature of what we mean by religious literacy or an understanding of religion. And I'm going to do this very quickly because I don't want to take much more time. First is that there's a distinction. This is from the perspective of scholars of religious studies. A distinction between a devotional assertion of, of a particular faith belief and the study of or engagement of diverse devotional assertions, which is the study of religion or the academic understanding of religion. The, the problem, the reason that we need to articulate that is that we often in public discourse conflate those two, where we will highlight a particular religious voice, a leader or a member of a religious community and assume that that voice represents the entirety of the religious tradition. So the distinction between uh, devotional assertion and the study or engagement of diverse devotional assertions. The second is that religions are internally diverse. Now this may seem a truism, but it's unfortunately another one that we often uh, misrepresent by making claims about Christians or Muslims or Buddhists. Uh, there's incredible diversity within traditions, not just in terms of sex or communities within traditions, Methodists, Mormons. Quakers, Roman Catholics, and Christianity, or Sunni Shia in Islam, for example. But within particular communities, there's incredible diversity. And so uh, literally, li- these are living religious traditions. Living religious traditions are always interpreted by uh, practitioners and believers themselves. And so we want to make sure to recognize that. The third tenet is that religions evolve and change, partly because they're, re- they're living. Uh, there's not They're not static. They're not ahistorical, which is unfortunately often the way we consider religions as well, where we talk about um, Muslims practice the five pillars, and Buddhists the four uh, noble truths, and Jews the ten commandments, and Christians the beatitudes, as though the, there's something that's timeless and ahistorical about that. Uh, first of all, even the nature of what is rises to prominence in a given religious tradition is itself historically contingent and culturally contingent. But even those that are, have a long life in, within the representation of a tradition, the interpretation of what those mean is really the rich questions around what it means to think about religious literacy. So religions evolve and change. And finally, the last is that religions are embedded in all dimensions of human experience and not isolated into a so-called private sphere of belief and ritual practice. And that is a longer conversation to have as to why that has uh, prevailed, that notion that religion is separate and private, But we uh, recognize that it's not as Religious Studies scholars, and certainly that's relevant in relationship to our conversations about this conference. So without further ado, can I invite our guests for Black Lives Matter, our presenters to come to the table here. I'm, we've asked all presenters to give brief opening remarks, each of them. And I will sit here with my very obnoxious um, timer uh, and remind all of you who are here speaking for your first initial comments uh, to stay, please, within the time frame. Then we're going to open it up to have questions among the par- pr- present presenters related to their comments so that there's an internal conversation here for a few minutes. And then we will open it up to the audience uh, for questions and comments. And so I'm going to request that the, when we do open it up to the audience that first that you reveal it yourself, you tell us who you are and your name. We have microphones that we're going to ask you to wait before you r- raise your question. To make sure that our online audience can hear your questions, so please be prepared to speak into the microphone. And we look forward to a robust and interesting and engaging conversation. Thank you all again for being with us. So I'm not going to spend time, neither is Steve when he is moderating. We're not going to spend time giving you the long introductions of these remarkable people who are speaking here. First, because you have those uh, bios in your folder, and secondly, we don't want to take away time from the important conversations that we're ready to have. So I'm going to just, we're going to move down in order of the, of the program. So Adele Banks will begin. And thank you very much again for being with us. And we look forward to hearing our presenters. So let's give them a welcome. Thank you.
1: Good morning. I think as a religion reporter and as a journalist, In general, I'm a big believer in expanding people's religious literacy and, when possible, bashing specific stereotypes. That's part of the reason I'm honored to be invited to this discussion. I'd quickly like to discuss a couple of points about assumptions and generalizations and then throw in an appreciation of history and language. Um, I've been interested in the question of the role of, or lack thereof, of the so-called black church in the Black Lives Matter movement. I moderate a panel on that topic at the Religion News Association meeting in September, and it was previously the topic of an article by Emma Green of The Atlantic. In general, I think it's important to ask questions about Black Lives Matter that haven't been asked or highlight answers that clarify it more fully so that people may understand the extent of religious reaction to it or involvement in it. There is not one approach, but many, um, to the movement by black churches. There often is a general assumption out there that black churches have shunned or uh, ignored or even disrespected the Black Lives Matter movement. And there certainly are instances where there has been some distance, as um, reported by Angel Jennings of the LA Times. There have also been statements and special emphases in some circles. And as Emma Green pointed out in her Atlantic piece, there are some charges of exploitation where some ministers have taken, um, used the movement to their advantage. But especially as um, the movement has gained uh, stature since the 2014 um, killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, some black church leaders have acknowledged they were grappling with how to address it. And now um, there are some that are are supportive. It's um, been as recently as last weekend in Long Island. There was an incident where a um, black former corrections officer was reported to have been beaten by white police officers who mistook him for a thief. And one of the people you saw in the news was a minister with a megaphone. So there were definitely people who are involved. So leaders of historically black churches, some of whom were involved or whose foreparents were involved in the civil rights movement, say they've long been about Black Lives Matter. The history of those churches includes some who were lifted from their knees when praying or otherwise disrespected or segregated from white congregants. And many of them left and started their own churches. And the African Methodist Episcopal Church is an example of that. So a little bit of history can be a key to connecting the past to the present. And that context is important for covering this subject, for religion journalism, and for news writing in general. In a story I wrote earlier this week about seminarians' uh, involvement and the study of uh, Black Lives Matter, I was able to point out that there is not always an intergenerational disconnect between the protesters of today and their elders in the civil rights movement. In an interview with Dean Emily Towns of Vanderbilt Divinity School earlier this year, I learned that an alumna of her school was instrumental in starting the Nashville chapter of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that alumna, DJ Hudson, in turn told me that it was a civil rights veteran, Reverend James Lawson, who instructed her and inspired her as she prepared for that activism in Tennessee. He had previously instructed students who led the sit-ins in the 1960s. Another assumption is that the Black Lives Matter movement is not religious, but is solely secular. Just because the church hasn't been in the lead does not mean that the Black Lives Matter movement is free of religion or spirituality. Um, those who are involved and those who support the movement um, may not be in the church, but they are still um, involved in other ways, uh, spiritual in other ways. Um, for instance, um, people of a variety of <coughs> religious expressions have found themselves looking to their faith, leaning on their faith to determine what could be considered a Black Lives Matter theology. It has succinctly been stated by the Reverend Asagi Fuseku, a St. Louis-born theologian if Black Lives Matter is a word, then Ferguson is a word made flesh. So inspired by the Bible study, Bible story of David and Goliath, Christian activist Bree Newsom felt moved to climb up the flagpole and take down the Confederate flag after the deaths of nine people at the Emanuel Amy Church in Charleston. A religious studies professor drew on Buddhist meditations to focus on compassion and equality. And as Hiba Farah pointed out in a Religion Dispatches article, one of the leaders of the movement, Patrice Klerz Brignac, grew up a Jehovah's Witness, but is now a practitioner of Ifa, a religious tradition from Nigeria. Leah Gunning Francis, who's Dean of Christian Theological Seminary, has written a book called Ferguson and Faith, Sparking Leadership and Awakening Community, which looked at how clergy of a variety of faiths realized they had to step out and join young protesters rather than waiting for them to darken their doors. And that book is part of a curriculum at the New York Theological Seminary this semester that is having a Black Lives Matter class. One of the frequent responses to Black Lives Matter is the retort that all lives matter, and some of my sources would say those two statements are not mutually exclusive. One seminarian I recently interviewed said she has a debate about those two phrases with her colleagues, and she was reported, um, as has been reported by a number of us, including Keith Bedford of the Boston Globe. Sometimes that debate extends to destruction or defacing of churches' signs that say Black Lives Matter. Whether they use the specific three words or not, some denominations as pointed out in Rachel Zoll's AP story have in recent years issued statements rejecting racism. Her report also pointed out the connection from the past to the present. The Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island's plan to house a museum inside its cathedral about the church's (coughs) involvement in the slave trade. Um, like the New York Theological Seminary class that is looking at the country's history of slavery, brutality against African Americans and white privilege, others are looking back and finding and unearthing the truth of the past. Um, some people are now considering whether to use the words black lives matter, but they're even moving farther and considering using this phrase white privilege, which is something that I did not hear many churches talking about in the past. Um, so they are t- to endorse making sure that people understand what that means, not experiencing or knowing the unfair treatment uh, that has been endured by non-whites. There are um, examples of a church in DC that had a white ally class, a church in the middle of the country that focused on cracking the shell of whiteness, and other conferences where people have had discussions about white privilege, white power, racism. And um, in general, there are some instances of churches deciding that they can't just check off their racial justice to-do list by saying that they've had a Black History Month event. Mm -hmm. Um, Others who um, fully acknowledge the country's fraught history on race relations say that using the term white privilege will stop rather than start discussions. One minister who I have uh, interviewed, Alan Cross, said, in the South, amongst conservative evangelicals, that would be a non-starter to use that language. Um, He's written a book on race and Southern evangelicals. He said, if you step back, a lot of people would agree if we talk about what we mean instead of just using the term, then they'll talk to you. So, As we explore this issue of religious literacy and journalism, especially as it relates to African Americans, I think it's important for us to, to look back even as we look ahead. It's important to explore which words people use, which they won't use, and what all of them really mean. And as a footnote, which I don't usually get to do in journalism, (laughs) I want to point out that to do this kind of work takes a lot of time, it takes money, and if possible, it takes travel, which a lot of journalists can't afford to do anymore. And um, I think that's uh, really a big challenge for for journalism in general and for religion journalism. And um, I want to reiterate what Laurie Goodstein said last night about the importance of scholars talking with us. Reporters do not know everything we need to talk to the people who know more than us and to have good <laughs> stories. So I implore scholars to return our calls, and <laughs> please. <laughs> and um, I also uh, wanted to reiterate the need for uh, a variety of resources that are out there, including Religion Link that's put out by the Religion News Foundation. It includes um, one on Black Lives Matter, links for reporters to and other people to get background on this subject and know of scholars across the country and in particular parts of the country. Thank you.
2: Okay, so I think I'm next. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I was um, based in St. Louis when Ferguson erupted, so I thought what I might do is uh, take you back to 2014 a little bit and offer uh, my perspective as I saw it from the ground. Uh, And uh, I think it'll tie into some of what Lori had talked about yesterday and also Adele, some of the points she's brought up now. Michael Brown died on a Saturday night in Ferguson I remember feeling anxious about my paper's coverage. Like many other newspapers, reporters at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch took turns working the weekend shift. I wasn't on duty the night police shot Brown, but I knew the two colleagues who were, and I repeatedly scrolled through Twitter, wondering when they might arrive on the scene of what some in the community were already calling a murder. I could tell by the reaction on social media that the news of Brown's death wasn't going away anytime soon, but I don't think any of us imagined it would turn into what was arguably the biggest story of 2014. Many reporters at the paper wondered out loud why the shooting of Michael Brown had led to months of protests. What about all the other black men who had been shot by police? (coughs) Clearly, the city had reached a boiling point. Millennials and other young people took center stage from the outset. As some would later point out, this is one way the Black Lives Matter movement differs from the civil rights movement of the 60s. Outspoken 20 and 30-somethings skilled at Twitter and other types of social social networks were the focus, not clergy. Still, there was no shortage of religion angles to chase down. Some churches operated as safe spaces, welcoming protesters attempting to escape the tear gas and rubber bullets fired by police. Al Sharpton, the well-known civil rights activist, rushed into town on several occasions to deliver impassioned speeches on behalf of the Brown family. St. Louis is also a city steeped in Catholicism. While some of the priests spoke out against police brutality, St. Louis's conservative archbishop struggled with striking a balance between the church's social justice teachings and the risk of offending those in the Catholic community who were were more sympathetic towards the police. And there were many pastors who seemed prepared to face the consequences of standing with protesters. Brown's father had been part of a small storefront church that would later receive death threats. After the grand jury (laughs) opted not to indict the officer who shot Brown, the church was one of the many buildings in the neighborhood that burned. In the midst of that chaos, torched buildings, broken glass, looted stores, I listened to a United Church of Christ minister by the name of Starsky Wilson tell a congregation filled with weeping Black Lives Matter supporters, quote, Thank God for people who go against the teachings of the church. Before the grand jury decision, religious leaders, not all but many, had already spent months testing boundaries. The day clergy marched to the Ferguson Police Department to demand that officers confess their sins is one that stands out in my mind. For the first time, I cringed at the way clergy and other protesters treated law enforcement. In the pouring rain, religious leaders had ordered officers to repent in Jesus's name. (coughs) Then they charged for the doors of the police department and knelt. One by one, they were handcuffed and taken into custody. Later that day, I spoke to an officer for a story on the nature of repentance. He said as a Christian, he had been offended by the dramatic demonstration. He noted that a rabbi had approached him with, quote, a face scrunched up like I was disgusting. For the most part, however, religious groups were about trying to restore peace at a time when there was very little trust. Nation of Islam members, for example, dressed up in suits and bow ties, regularly patrolled the neighborhoods, acting as intermediaries between the community and the police. But protesters weren't just skeptical of law enforcement; they were wary of almost any institution, that included religious organizations. I remember laughing at myself when a colleague of mine told me one pastor had a bad reputation because, they, because protesters had heard he was talking to networks about a possible reality TV show based on the chaos in Ferguson. The distrust also extended to, the, to those of us in the media. Black lives. Matter supporters constantly challenged journalists on Twitter. Although reporters worked as quickly as possible to gather facts, some had made up their minds about why Brown had been killed early on. Brown was a thug, a word that was tossed around a lot by those who believed black youth received the kind of treatment they deserved. Conversely, others believed Brown and other young black men in America did not deserve to die, no matter the circumstances. Meanwhile, old-fashioned journalism was slow to provide clarity, complicated questions such as, did Michael Brown actually have his hands up when confronted by police, or did Brown and the officer have some kind of altercation that led to the shooting, lingered for some time. As we learned new information, we wondered sometimes who would listen. (coughs) Readers seemed to only trust outlets that validated their own (coughs) worldview. I'm afraid that I think the challenges challenges facing religion journalism in particular are severe. For about a year and a half, I was given great freedom as the religion reporter at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I was in the heartland with an eye on faith, covering stories few others would. General assignment reporters can cover religion, of course, but I think to do it well, religion reporters need to be afforded the same resources others receive in the newsroom. This is unlikely to happen. After Ferguson, the company that owns the St. Louis Post-Dispatch rewarded the staff for its hard work by laying off reporters. The religion beat was one of the first things to go. Rather than stay on as a general assignment reporter, I accepted an offer at Religion and Ethics Newsweekly, a show on PBS. Two to three months after starting there, I learned that the show was coming to an end. Our last taping is in February. The future of Black Lives Matter may be just as uncertain. The movement outlined a specific set of demands only this year. There have been some significant changes, however. Police shootings are receiving more scrutiny than ever, and the US Department of Justice is tracking police shootings for the first time. So I still do have hope.
3: Morning. Early, <laughs> thank you. Early last year, uh, I was in Jackson, Mississippi, covering, uh, uh, reporting a story about the life and death of uh, Chokwe Lumumba, uh, who was a, a black nationalist lawyer uh, who became uh, mayor of the city. It was a story that uh, ended up coming out in Vice magazine, and in the course of working on it, I. Uh, I went to see a man, uh, the Reverend Wendell Paris, a civil rights elder who was uh, uh, working at that point at a a Baptist church in Jackson. And he he told me a a history of the civil rights period that I had never really heard before. He had been, at the time in the 50s and 60s, a leading organizer with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and a supporter of the organization. And he told me a story about the role of cooperative enterprises, biz, kinds of businesses and ownership structures built on, uh, uh, you know, democratic shareholding and and uh, uh, democratic governance that uh, I had never heard. For instance, he said, you know, remember, you know, those pictures of those people lining up to to register to vote and getting beaten up or driven out of the courthouse or something like that. He said, you know, usually those were the co-op members because they were the ones who wouldn't get kicked off you know, the, the sharecropping farm, right? They were owners, so they had the capacity uh, to take a risk like that. Then he talked about black power and said, you know, did you know that that discourse of black power started to emerge when Stokely Carmichael was uh, uh, at a, staying on a cooperative farm in Georgia? You know, and, that, and that it was in seeing some of this uh, this ownership and this self-management that, that black power as a frame started to uh, emerge for him. And then also he told me stories about these cooperatives being suppressed just as ruthlessly as, as both of those efforts. Uh, for instance, a, he told a story about a truckload of cucumbers from black-owned co-ops that were being shipped up north because they couldn't sell them in the south. And uh, the, the Mississippi state troopers stopped them Stop these trucks on the road in the middle of the hot summer sun. Make them sit there all day until they were mush, and then say you can proceed uh, when night came. This was a history I had never encountered before, but it's one that actually even goes much further back than this. Um, I I was uh, glad to discover a few days ago that that my uh, university library had a copy of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's 1907 report from an Atlanta University conference on economic cooperation among uh, Negro Americans. The report suggests that perhaps one could consider all economic activity among African Americans at that time to be, in some sense, cooperative. Uh, churches are a subset of that report, as are it, it is a list of several hundred distinct uh, 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 Black-owned businesses That were operating under formal cooperative principles under international standards at that time. And this book ended up spurring a really important recent study uh, by Jessica Gordon embhardt at at, uh, John Jay uh, College of Community Justice uh, or Criminal Justice called Collective Courage, the first uh, uh, recent history of African American cooperation. This is not something I heard about in the history books before this, but it's something that I've started seeing come up more and more uh, as I've started asking questions about this side of these, of these um, movements for resistance that have uh, uh, transformed our country. For instance, when I asked um, a mentor of mine, Mary King, about it, she was a communications director for uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, uh, during the 60s. Uh, She said, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, when we were in Mississippi, we were organizing cooperatives as well as registering people to vote. You know, it just seemed kind of obvious to her. Uh, And and since then, she's become a leading scholar of civil resistance and and pointed out to me, reminded me, uh, uh, that for Gandhi, uh, 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 her most recent book was uh, very critical of Gandhi, actually, but... um, uh, uh, nine, he, he understood ninety percent of what he was doing as what he called the constructive program, you know, the building of communities and economic alternatives. That spinning wheel, right, that's on the flag uh, of India now, uh, and, and, and only a small percentage of the activity was around the, the, the feats of resistance that it, that end up getting the headlines, you know, that end up being the story that we see in the news and that become our history. These alternatives, too, for Gandhi, for uh, uh, for a lot of these African-American communities of resistance, have also been so rooted in religious traditions. And it's partly my interest and my background in the study of religion that allowed me to start seeing them. Now, if you look at that Black Lives Matter platform, in the section on economic justice, cognates of cooperation, cooperative, Uh, are mentioned 42 times. Uh, The the headline of the economic justice section uh, is uh, calls for a reconstruction of the economy to ensure black communities have collective ownership, not merely access. There is a a vital tradition that is coursing uh, through this movement as well, but we never see it in the news. I remember, for instance, the... um, uh, when I went to some of the early rallies in Union Square in New York uh, after the death of Trayvon Martin, one of the first things people were calling for was boycotts. You know, uh, the, the role of economy in this struggle uh, has been there from the beginning, but it's one that we've rarely been able to talk about. And actually, after uh, uh, Mayor Lumumba's death, the, emerge, the organization that emerged in his wake is called Cooperation Jackson. And it's had a kind of interesting role over the course of the Black Lives Matter movement through its connection uh, to um, uh, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, which is an outgrowth of of a series of black nationalist organizations that emerged in the 70s, ones that are rooted deeply in a sense of uh, Pan-African identity. Um, uh, These are people who use uh, terms like Harambe and Ujamaa to talk about. Uh, their their cooperative activity, drawing on on African concepts, uh, working in an international context, um, and uh, early on in the in the Black Lives Matter movement, they uh, helped frame this this uh, hashtag uh, Operation Ghetto Storm, which was a very controversial uh, hashtag early in the movement. There's also a kind of critique that I heard from them sometimes. You know, these are th- th- these. Um, uh, people carrying on the legacy of, of Lumumba in Jackson um, and have been very involved and very supportive of the work around Black Lives Matter around the country. But there's also a critique. Kali Akuno, uh, the leader uh, of Cooperation Jackson, at this point, um, said at one point he was, he was flipping chicken on a grill uh, uh, and kind of talking to a group of people around him. And, and he said, I'm not a fan of the Black Lives Matter thing because to be honest with you, they don't. Your life did matter when you were valuable property. You were very valuable at one point in time. We're not valuable property anymore. You know, I want to emphasize that this, you know, sometimes are, this is not just a critique of Black Lives Matter as such. It's a critique of the narrow framing you know, which emphasizes this conflict, which emphasizes um, the relationship with the police, and that isn't able to see the broader vision. And this is a real challenge for us, as journalists, as storytellers, as people who are maybe writing that first draft of history, and then as scholars who are compiling those first drafts into monographs. There are sides of these movements that get through and then there are sides that don't, that may be just as important and more important. There are limits to what we can pack into a narrative. There's limits also to what we can say and that people, that people will hear, that will get picked up, that people will know how to hear. And there are respects in which I feel like I can be grateful to my, for my training in the study of religion for helping me to see sides of these movements that are not always quite so visible. I've tried uh, and, and, uh, 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 and often failed to tell these stories and to help them enter into the conversation. But I still feel like I don't really know how to do it. And I wonder how we can open up our narratives to entertain more stories, to entertain a broader mix that doesn't enter into the picture normally, but yet is central to what it means to build a movement for social change and black power in this country. Thank you.
4: It is uh, lovely to be back at HDS. I am an alum, and this is where the long, strange trip that has taken me from reporting on religion in Texas to working on a doctorate at Princeton to overseeing a portfolio on religion in academics and religion in media at Pew took me. And um, I am am very amazed that someone um, has managed to carve, not one, but three careers out of a degree, which my father was quite upset when I told him I was about to enroll in. Um, Black Lives Matter is a hashtag, a network, a movement, an organization, but it's also a group of people who have a spiritual agenda. I know that because I heard Patrice Cullors say it to Krista Tippett. Cullors said that insofar as a spiritual movement is about healing and reconciliation, Black Lives Matter fits into that definition. And it is unfortunate, she said, and Krista agreed, that the media has overlooked this dimension of Black Lives Matter painting it as a one-dimensional, one-issue organization against police brutality. However, it's not surprising that the mainstream legacy media, which, I am, which is a way I will refer to media that began pre-internet and has since migrated online, it's not surprising because the mainstream legacy media um, covers most social movements as spectacle, interested in not what they are about or what they stand for, but what they do, especially when what they do involves conflict and violence. I am going to be saying a lot of stuff very quickly, and I hope that I can unpack it in question and answer time, because I don't have time to elaborate on a lot of the statements I'm going to be making right now. So given what I've just set up, which is that Black Lives Matter is a spiritual movement and it has not been fully covered by the mainstream media, which does a disservice to religious literacy, I'm going to pose and answer several questions. The first is, why is Black Lives Matter a spiritual movement besides the fact that Patrice told us it was? (laughs) Two, if so, how can this story be used to further religious literacy? And three, Um, how to make this kind of reporting and coverage that furthers religious literacy possible. So the first, is Black Lives Matter a spiritual movement beyond um, one of the founders saying it is? First of all, I am a firm believer in taking someone's word of what their identity is, so if you say you're Nathan, I believe you're Nathan. (laughs) Um, So that's number one. How people, but above and beyond that, how people respond to economic, social, political political conditions reflects their spiritual and religious orientations. It reflects how they understand their self, their community, their meaning, and their purpose. Most social movements can be seen through the lens of religion and spirituality, And we can discuss what I mean by religion and spirituality, but I'm saying that divorcing spirituality and religion from the larger framework in which they're embedded with with our feelings about our politics, our economics, and our society does a disservice to all of those um, aspects of culture. Um, This is what we mean by seeing spirituality and religion as embedded. Um, in larger systems and it's also what we mean when we talk about lived religion and how we find lived religion which is a a religion that goes on uh, six days a week outside of religious institutions. Um, Some religious, some some media have covered these aspects of Black Lives Matter among other social movements. I'm very proud to say the um, publication which I which I represent, Religion Dispatches, has done that from the beginning. We were among the first outlets to talk about Black Lives Matter as a spiritual movement. And I recommend anyone going back and looking at this coverage. And um, we've had a very lively debate about the theology behind it. Mainstream media has been picking up on this, as Adele said. She did a great story just this week on seminaries and the theology of Black Lives Matter. But this is already two or three years out as far as this movement. So, yes, um, Black Lives Matter is spiritual. It's spiritual because it speaks to basic human questions, concerns, desires, and motivations. What does this add to the study? What does studying Black Lives Matter as a, or reporting on it as a religious spiritual movement add to religious literacy? Um, First of all, reminding ourselves that social movements have spiritual aspects, I think is a very important part of religious literacy. Secondly, uh, studying Black Lives Matter as a spiritual movement complicates our understanding of black religion. You know, we've had a debate whether, you know, what about the black church or the black churches? And is there a monolithic black religion? And what's going on with black religion? Well, this is a whole different side of what black, spirituality and religion could be, that we should be writing about it as such. It's important, too, because it also adds a dimension to our most recent religion story that's been dominating the news of nuns and, N-O-N-E-S, nuns and the unaffiliated. Because in a sense, um, that's about white people. Black Lives Matter suggests it's also about people of color and the fact that um, this phenomena of Being religiously unaffiliated and looking for options outside of institutions is not just a white upper middle class phenomena. It also complicates our idea of religion being more than what white evangelicals tend to do. The legacy mainstream media has a bias to people who hold Bibles and say that they are ultimate authorities on religion. Um, They tend to quote them as if they truly are ultimate authorities on religion. The fact of the matter is, they're not. And um, there are many various sources of people who have religious and spiritual authenticity and truth who don't wave Bibles at you. Um, I think it's important to start covering those people with the same depth and complexity, even if their sound bites aren't as juicy Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, as we have. And I count myself guilty of this crime when I was also a member of the legacy mainstream media. to widen our understanding of what it means to be religious and spiritual and to see Black Lives Matter as part of that. So my last and most complex question is how might the news media make all this possible? I have to say, I don't have very much faith in the the legacy mainstream media. Despite the examples of people like Michelle Borstein and Lori um, Goodstein and Wendy Thomas, who Um, uphold the flag and fight the good fight, the legacy mainstream media has been in a crash situation for years. Um, The finances are not stabilized and the goal is monetization. I live in Los Angeles. I have seen the LA Times go from a well-decorated national newspaper to a regional rag where the newsroom has been diminished from 1,500 editorial positions to 500. Um, there are papers that can withstand this, but um, I'm sure you've heard the rumors, Lori, that the Times is going to do another layoff buyout this season. So even if it's not this season, it will be next season, because the bottom line in the news, in the for-profit news business, is that we must monetize. And I will tell you horror stories about that in the Q&A if you want to hear them. Um this means that most newspapers are operating, as far as editorial content goes, in terms in terms of an economy of scarcity. There are no religion reporters on the religion beat. I mean, yes, there are a few, but they are, as Deborah Mason can tell us, very very much diminished in their ranks. Um, and to expect a GA reporter, a reporter, to come up and actually be able to dig in deep in this beat is it's impossible to do. It's, it's one of the beats where you do need expertise. So 10, 20, 30 years ago, um, when there actually were religion reporters, we did lament, why can't you get more attention? Why can't you get more space? Why can't you get more time? Why can't we give you the resources we, you need? And yes, that's what we tried to do, but that's not the situation anymore. I do not believe we can look to legacy mainstream media to provide religious literacy. However, the news, the news um, environment is not an economy of scarcity anymore. As Lori herself said, <coughs> religious, uh, religion online sites have blossomed. Not only is there places like RD and Religion and Ethics and Religion and Politics and Pathios, Tablet, OnBeing, Sojo. There are also mainstream there are also um, non-religion sites such as the Atlantic, Ground Truth, Global Post, Pulitzer uh, Center that take religion very seriously. What many of these have in common is the fact they are funded by nonprofits. And um, as I look to what where we can see help for religious literacy, it's in the nonprofit sector. Whether it's been Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford, Lily, or Pew. These foundations realized as long ago as 20 years ago that the public needed religious literacy. 20 years ago, they funded resources. Now they're funding actual publications. So I look at the future, and that's where I see help. What I see is help coming from academics. I don't think academics can leave this to reporters. It's fine if reporters want to call us up and we want to answer questions. But the future of religious literacy is us to finding the outlets, whether it's the conversation, religion dispatches, imminent frame, pathos, to actually tell the story in depth and um, with the empathy, the critical thinking, and the understanding that is very hard for the mainstream legacy media to bring to these stories because they are run by market economies, which have other than humanistic concerns in mind. Sorry for running over. <laughs>
5: Um, thank y'all. This is a wonderful opportunity. Let get my table to stand Um So since I received the invitation to speak on this panel, I've thought a lot about um, how my experience with the Christian faith um, influences my values and how my values influence my journalism. Um, my bio is correct in the program except that now I work as a freelance journalist, um, writing for publications primarily the Christian Science Monitor and the Undefeated, and sometimes the Chicago Tribune. Um, I'm also the editor of MLK50 Justice Through Journalism. It is a year-long reporting project, um, timed to the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. It's going to be a deep dive into economic justice in Memphis um, and to understand why black people still remain on the economic margins there Um, nearly 50 years after his death. Um, Memphis, the city where King was killed, is where I grew up, and I've worked there for the last 13 years as a journalist. Uh, I was raised in the Pentecostal church, the Assemblies of God, to be specific. Um, My family moved from Ohio to Memphis in 1980, and um, when we started attending Raleigh Assembly of God, we um, integrated it, effectively. We were the only black family there. Um, growing up black and churched in Memphis, knew that I uh, meant that I knew a little more than most probably about um, Dr. King um, and how his activism was fueled by his faith. Uh, it was clear to me that the two were inextricably linked, which leads me to a short story. Um, this occurred on Sunday, April 3rd, 1983. It was the day before the 15th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Um, It's a Sunday, so I was in church, as you had to be unless you were dead. Um, (laughs) In my household, I guess then the service would be in church, and so you would still be in church. Um, So we were um, at church listening to the um, white pastor of this barely integrated congregation, um, and I had hoped that the pastor would take note of the upcoming anniversary and the occasion. Um, Since this is Memphis, my hope I didn't feel like was entirely misplaced, um, but he said nothing. That afternoon, I channeled my disappointment into a letter. How could he pass up a perfect moment to tie uh, King's commitment to nonviolence to the Beatitudes? Um, Why did he stay silent about King's dream for economic and racial justice? And how did he think I felt as one of very few black parishioners in his church when he didn't mention King at all? On Monday, I mailed the letter. Not sure where I found the envelope or the stamp. Um, and on Wednesday evening, my mom took my siblings and, I, and my siblings and me back to church. So we were in the children's services, and after um, church ended, I went to find my mother in the sanctuary. And she was standing there in the back with the pastor to whom I'd written this letter, and he had a pained look on his face. The pastor asked if we could sit down and talk, And so in the back of this nearly empty sanctuary, um, we sat down. Um, He told my mother and me that he'd gotten the letter and my mother looked at me like, what letter? The pastor summarized the letter and I avoided eye contact with either of them. (laughs) Then tears pooled in the pastor's eyes. He said he'd never meant to offend me and that he was hurt that I would think otherwise. Um, My mother said something conciliatory and I said nothing. My letter had had the effect I intended, which was to get this middle-aged white man to see the world through my eyes. And 2003, 20 years after I wrote that letter, I became um, the Metro columnist at the Daily Paper in Memphis, the Commercial Appeal. Um, I was the first black woman to be a columnist there in the paper's um, then 165-year history. There I wrote about race and marginalized people in a way that sometimes made white people uncomfortable. My goal was, as it was um, with my letter to my pastor, was to try to get readers to see the world through my eyes. Not infrequently, uh, white readers bristled at my point of view. A few were polite, many were angry. A sizable minority would respond with emails littered with the N word and the B word. And a few were so angry that they sent death threats or in one particular chilling instance, threatened to rape me. When I told my mom about the nasty grams that I'd received, my mother, who is super-duper extra-saved, um, <laughs> like her in <and> Jesus <laughs> um, she would paraphrase scripture. Um, A prophet is without honor in her own country. Yeah. Some of the strongest um, opinion, on, opinion journalism on Black Lives Matter comes from writers like Charles Blow of the New York Times, or my mentor Leonard Pitts at the Miami Herald. And as all thoughtful journalists do, I, try, I seek first to understand where my sources are coming from. I try to place what they face today in the context of the past, which of course is just prologue. Um, but in this discussion, I want to affirm the role of opinion journalists, those of us who do get to take a side, those of us who do speak truth to power, and to see themselves perhaps as reluctantly as I did, as prophets. We too can benefit from closer relationships with experts in religion. I agree with Lori's uh, remarks yesterday. Uh, Newsrooms don't have the expertise in religion they once did. And it doesn't seem that many editors see the value in integrating um, religious culture into the broader news culture. And that's how you get coverage that at mid-sized papers, like the ones that I've worked at, feels too shallow to illuminate. Um, I'm unusual among journalists and newsrooms that I've worked in um, growing up in the Christian tradition. I've actually read the Bible through at least twice. Um, But if journalists are too unfamiliar with religious text, they're unlikely to be able to point out the dissonance between what the Bible says and what evangelicals do. Um, An exploration of evangelicals wrestling with Black Lives Matter that never calls them to reconcile with Jesus' commitment to the marginalized, um, and this in the scripture that they claim is the inerrant word of God, those stories leave me unsatisfied. In July in Memphis, um, and what I, as best I can tell, was the largest black led protest since Dr. King came to Memphis in 68, uh, Black Lives Matter activists shut down the Interstate 40 Bridge. Um, this is the bridge that spans the Mississippi River connecting Tennessee to Arkansas. A handful of black ministers joined the crowd of more than a 1,000 protesters, um, almost all of whom were black. Uh, there weren't any white pastors there. Their silence, um, I interpret as indifference and apathy. And apathy is worse than hate. It indicates that the marginalized aren't even worthy of attention. And even some of the city's um, rabbis, which are traditionally aligned with um, civil and human rights movements were um, conspicuously absent. Uh, Some um, citizens and probably journalists view the world in terms of how far we've come. Um, And so they see progress in the fact that um, slavery is is over, except for those who've been convicted of crimes, Um, and that segregation is in the past, although we've found ways to resegregate our public schools. Um, my standard for progress is different. It's um, in how how far we still have to go, both to live up to our national ideas and um, the ideas expressed in holy text. Um, Too much of the coverage that I see of um, religion is praise for what churches are doing, which is usually charity. Um, I'm reminded of the saying that when the issue is justice, charity is sin. Um, I would like to see journalists, and it will likely have to be opinion journalists, pressing those in uh, the faith community um, to articulate what their God requires. As I understand it, it is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. (coughs) How do they reconcile the Old Testament command to love mercy with support of uh, Trump's law and order rhetoric? Um, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yet Trump's profane, violent, and abusive speech is overlooked. Too often, and I have been guilty of this myself, journalists let sources get away with vague platitudes like strive to work together for a society that ensures peace and justice for all, um, which is language taken from one of the stories that we read for this case study. What does that look like in practical terms? If you had to add that to your to-do list, (laughs) (laughs) what would you write write down? And um, for me, who thinks very deeply about race and class, I want to know what these religious values, uh, what the connection is to public policy. These are all questions that journalists can ask, and perhaps opinion journalists more directly than reporters can. And I believe these questions would help us increase our religious literacy and deepen our understanding of the place that faith occupies in protest and human rights movements. So one of the questions I hope we get to consider in the discussion is, um, what is is the role of opinion journalists in the larger context of Black Lives Matter and other movements for marginalized people, and how can academics (laughs) work more closely with these journalists?
0: Thank you. I, I also just want to, I'm going to make all of my colleagues here at Harvard uh, pay attention and see the stream of this panel just for the very fact that actually all of you stayed within the 10-minute time limit, <laughs> We we're, we never do here, so, I, so thank you for that. I, so just uh, three themes that I just wanted to highlight and then open it up again for questions among the panelists to each other. Uh, and then open it up for the larger group and we're going we're gonna to stay here till 10.50 so you all know what our timeline is. So so first I want to say how appreciative I am at so many of uh, what all of you have done in your own journalism which is to disrupt assumptions. The choices that many of you have addressed in your own writing has to do with acknowledging assumptions that you know are prevalent in the context of your audiences, and sharing stories that challenge those. Um, and so I just want to say that I think that notion of disrupting assumption is a really critical one as we think about how to enhance better understanding of anything, but particularly better understanding of religion. So evangelicals, for example, who are supporting Black Lives Matter is is a theme that, that several of you have written about, um, especially in... Evangelical Christian Colleges, some of the most storied of them, have uh, members of those community students engaging in challenging and addressing Black Lives Matter out of their Christian commitments. Uh, the other I want to raise is this question of how to address the larger stru- what, what I would call structural violence questions that always shape and inform the nature of any, again, issue we're looking at, Uh, that help us realize that the particularities of of these stories don't come out of nowhere. And Nathan, your comments about the larger questions, I think, highlight that. But I know that, again, all of our panelists here have addressed that question. And then finally, I just want to come and just reinforce Wendy's articulation of the distinction between commentary journalists, journalists who can take a stand, and what that means for then other journalists who do the R word, (laughs) what Laurie called the reporting. Um, And these distinctions, I think, are often blurred. And in a post-truth era, unfortunately, we have now incredible blurring of these these guidelines. And I just wonder, I'd love to hear journalists' expression of how they negotiate those challenges, assuming that, of course, nothing is neutral or value-free. No journalist even doing the R work is neutral. But there is an important distinction to be made, and I think one that we... Uh, recognize when we see it, like a little bit like pornography, right? <laughs> you know, balanced journalism or un—I don't want to say balance gets cr- challenged too because of this notion of what we're now giving normalization to, to say we want to hear from all sides. That's a challenge but this, what does it mean to do responsible reporting, journalist reporting in this era, and what is the distinction between that and overt expression of, of commentary? So those are just some themes that I would love for us to keep in our mind, and I'd like to now turn it over to our panelists. Do you have questions for each other? And please just jump right in, direct your question to your colleague, and we'll, we'll do this for maybe 10 minutes or so before we open it up.
1: I had a question for Wendy, since um, when she said she was Pentecostal, the last thing I thought she was going to say was Assemblies of God. Um, My recollection is that George Wood, the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God, was one of the few who actually used the phrase about Black Lives Matter in a statement, a couple years ago now I think it's been, and I'm wondering whether you have any sense of how things played out after that, after a statement was made, did you see anything else? Happen in assemblies of God, congregations, etc.
5: So I should I should clarify. I um, was I tried to take pains. I was raised in a Pentecostal church. I am not Pentecostal or affiliated with any formal faith tradition now. Uh, my parents are still there, but my father actually I'm sure he won't watch this. Um,
0: <laughs>
5: uh, actually stopped going to the church he's been attending for 36 years because of the. Um, the conservative rhetoric that he just could not abide
4: anymore. So, um, yeah, for what that's worth. Nathan, have you seen any stories about the uh, the uh, farming cooperatives in the news media? And if not, why do you think you have it?
3: Uh, well, in that, in that particular case, uh, I mean, these like the Federation of Southern Cooperatives right now is in decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the forms, as, as we um, have suggested, I mean, I, I think a number of us took up the kind of historical trajectory, and there is a kind of institutional replacement going on right now. And so it was interesting to be in Jackson and, on the one hand, be meeting with this generation that set up this these co-ops of the 50s and 60s, and then also to be with those who are doing that in the era of Black Lives Matter, their interests, their culture, their way of talking, their uh, uh, strategies are very, very different, right? And and so, um, in a way, the new generation seems to be, in some respects, starting from scratch. Um, uh, in some respects, draw. They know who the elders are. They, you know, they they. they but they have to keep a certain amount of distance in order to create their own culture and their own space.
4: And who's telling that story?
3: A few of us, <laughs> but, but, um, but I, I guess the, my plea at the end of what I offered was, was to find a way to tell more of these stories. I mean, I, I, I've, uh, I think it's hard to get them into the mix. It's hard to fit them into the frame you know when when the movement is presented in terms of its flashpoints, in terms of when the um, when the protests hit the streets and the cops show up with the with the military hardware. Uh, that you know those are the stories that we tend to get drawn to, uh, uh, but but we don't we don't see the kind of animating. Uh, uh, strategies of survival that enable people to take part in these kinds of struggles. Uh, and this is something that I've uh, seen in a lot of social movements that I've covered over the years, and, and so it's not a unique challenge here, but I think it's particularly important um, when we talk about a movement like the ongoing struggle for black lives that has existed as long as the United States of America has existed and longer right, um, because the stories that we tell are actually the lessons that we teach for perseverance. Um, and, and I found in covering uh, uh, social movements that those who, who understand these, this broader dimension of what makes movements possible are the ones who are able to do it for a lifetime, right, and those who have only seen the, the flashpoints and imagine that as the, um, as the, the, the narrative of resistance, will tend to get involved, get uh, really excited for a few weeks or a few months or a year, and, and then burn out and, um, uh, uh, and go off and do something else.
4: I guess I think there are structural reasons Diane, why you do not Diane, see these stories. can you speak stories. into the mic? I'm sorry. I think there are structural reasons that you don't see these stories in the legacy mainstream media, mm-hmm. and why you need why we need alternative media to tell them. Um, but you seem not to you seem to hedge that.
3: No, I, actually, I think as you said that I was thinking, for instance, of some other. Um, it's not just legacy media. Um, some other. Media business models. You know, it was uh, quite striking to me to hear the news uh, recently that Twitter is cons- is is um, uh, is eliminating Vine, right? Is shutting Vine down. You know, a, a, a kind of brief video capture tool that has been really vital to the 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 documentation pra- practices of Black Lives Matter and. And other movements, and 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 beyond just the kind of documentation of violence and so forth, but it's also a tool of culture of 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 um, uh, enabling kind of new dance moves and phrases to enter our our, our discourse out of communities who don't have access to um, uh, to large media outlets otherwise. Um, and, and it was a, it was a business decision in the midst of Twitter trying to figure out how to keep. Jacking up its stock price uh, uh, in the midst of this talk about a, a buyout, um, and, and I'm also I keep kind of being haunted by uh, a, a remark that I heard secondhand that Anthea Butler made that um, Twitter is Black Twitter is the new Black Church, right? Mm-hmm. If if we take that that statement seriously, which I I think um, uh, we should, that does raise questions about who owns Twitter, who controls it, who gets to make decisions about whether Vine lives or dies.
5: I have a question. OK, please. Um, question for Adele. I am um, curious. You mentioned Reverend um, Sekou. And I'm thinking um, But how as journalists, we do take seriously um, our role in writing the first draft of history and wondering um, how we include the names and the narratives of um, more faith leaders in our stories so it doesn't get distilled to Sekou and Barber, and that will be um,
1: that will be it. What's your thoughts on that? Um, as a journalist, I try to remember to ask people at the end of interviews, is there something I didn't ask you that you wish I had? And sometimes, is there somebody else I should know to call and talk to? And when Emily Towns told me about DJ Hudson, that was an example of that. And I had been searching for that, DJ Hudson, for a long time. I knew that there were people like that. I didn't know specifically that I was going to find a seminarian who'd helped found a chapter of Black Lives Matter. But I knew that there were voices that were related to religion that were involved. And it's just continuing to ask the question. But that is one of my favorite things about journalism is to try to sometimes we're successful and sometimes we're not, but to, to go beyond the voices and the names you've always heard. It's really important. It's, it's part of expanding the narrative, as I've
2: been talking about. I've got a question for you. So um, I've you know distanced myself from this beat since I left St. Louis. And I'm wondering, since you just did that story about Black Lives Matter you know, being taught in theology schools, if you're seeing any more, one of the, you know, People criticized the movement a lot early on, because they thought that uh, protesters were just too disorganized, didn't have concrete goals, weren't going to get anywhere. And we, as I've mentioned, we have seen some changes. But uh, have, you, have you gotten the sense that people are more united and are, are sort of have narrowed down what exactly they're looking for as far as the movement is concerned? I don't know how in contact you are still with you know, some of the like DeRay or some of the other main protesters.
1: Unfortunately, I do not have the kind of contact that I would like to have with, with people who might be considered the leaders of the movement. But I do think that in the case of the seminarians, they pointed out, we, and the professors, that they were dealing not just with police brutality, but a much broader range of issues, which is, again, I think something that is not reported enough. You know, that some of them have been involved in economic uh, injustice issues, not just police brutality. And um, some of the seminarians in DC, who are also ministers, are trying to deal with food deserts where people don't have access to grocery stores and are developing food pantries. So I think that um, there is some success in reporting about the fact that the movement isn't just about one thing. Um, but the connections I would expect in part is because of distrust between journalists and p- people who are on the street, it's, it's something that we have to keep working at.
0: Okay. Any other questions from our panelists?
3: Um, I, I have a question for those who've, who've been focusing on this, on, on the spirituality of Black Lives Matter. Are, are there, I mean, beyond the kind of familiar dualities that we see of a kind of <laughs> Evangelical poll and a secular poll are there what kinds of new forms are you seeing emerging in the spirituality of this of, of um, this movement uh, what kinds of new categories do you see coming out I mean do, do you see something that 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 um, you know de- demands of us some new names or some new um, uh, I, you know, I, I think, for instance, of the incredible diversity of this country that is often just written over, the incredible spiritual diversity of this country. What are we missing in terms of this the spiritual diversity of, of Black Lives Matter?
1: I think that one of you mentioned, maybe it was Diane, about the nuns being expanded by this. The whole notion of being spiritual but not religious, I think, is expressed by a lot of people in the Black Lives Matter movement. But again, that's the kind of thing where you need the time and the willingness of the people you want to interview to share that with you. And I can't say that I've gotten there yet. I'd love to get there because I think that is an important aspect of this again, to not have such a narrow look because because there's a lot of different dimensions.
4: When I mentioned to a friend who is a reporter that um, I was going to be here talking about Black Lives Matter as a spiritual movement, and she had a I mean, this was incomprehensible, because to her, a her definition of religion and spirituality was more institutional and more, you know, what are you doing on Sunday or maybe Saturday, and the idea of the spirituality behind social movements was, um, it, it just made no sense. Made no sense. And this is someone who's an esteemed reporter. She's not on the religion beat. She's not hostile to it, but it's not. She doesn't think about it. So when we talk about religious literacy, um, I think that part of what we need to do is, is expand our idea of what constitutes religion and spirituality. And Black Lives Matter is, is a great example of that. Because to me, it is a spiritual movement. And the trick is, how do we begin writing about it as such?
5: Um, to that question, um, I feel like at the um, Black Lives Matter uh, movements that I've protested, I've attended as a journalist, not as a participant. Uh, not as a participant. Um, there's definitely a sense of um, this being part of a, a larger destiny or purpose um, uh, for some of the protesters' lives. Um, that they were called for such a time as this. Like if this is their moment, I don't know that they would define it in terms of um, a spiritual. Experience um, but definitely that there is a side of justice, and that they have they have chosen that um, and they're willing to make uh, the sacrifices necessary, which to me there 's lots of echoes um, of the Christian faith that i 'm familiar with behind that, but i don 't know that, that the um, um, participants themselves are uh, Are articulating it like that. And then I also see a lot of discussion about the psychological toll that that, uh, protesters and activists um, feel and lots of discussion about self-care and what does that mean to um, take care of your soul and to make sure you're fed, which again, I'm hearing all these um, Mm -hmm. religious language behind it. And I don't know that they're making the connection necessarily, but I certainly Mm -hmm. hear that.
4: Americans have a very thin understanding of what religion is and it's partly because of the devil's pact we made as a secular country and the privatization of religion.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: And so we have very sort of concrete models of what we can call religious and mm-hmm. I think exactly what you say is true. If you listen to the language and you look at the action, you will see that these speak to very deep what I call <coughs> spiritual mm-hmm. hungers and and motivations and yet it's hard for people to recognize them as such because we have religion kind of walled off.
0: So uh, again, I want to—I just want to underscore uh, w- <laughs> what everyone is saying, and just Diane, your your latest comment. We have a very—we do have a very narrow understanding of religion. We—it's uh, deeply embedded in our culture, of an assumption of religion. Again, with this particular, usually Christian, usually Protestant Christian in our context, and your comment about. The only people we really think are religious are those holding a Bible and speaking very loudly that that's what they have the authority to speak. So I think that for, for, for us is a really fundamental question of what does it mean to really have an expansive understanding of religion that breaks through those categories, recognizes them, but breaks through them. I just want to say too, Lily, your, your article on you know, for the na- Nation of Islam, represented, again, not just the, the, their work as uh, peacekeepers, but also you, in that very short article, were able to represent a diversity within the nation of Islam, which I so appreciate is such a critical one. Laura Turner, who's not here but wrote another one of our focus case studies, really highlighted the role of, again, young evangelical white Christians in uh, evangelical schools across the country uh, and this particular quote is really an important one that we don't often hear. Christians should be, really be the first people speaking out against injustice and standing with those who are experiencing injustice. And this is Andrew Whitworth, who's a 22-year-old student at Taylor University. So again, complicating these broad strokes that are so ubiquitous in public conversation and again, re- representing things that disrupt assumption, I think, is part of what our focused reporters can do, right? And you, and and again, so many of you are doing it so well. Adele, you're, uh, similarly. Your um, your report in October of 2015 of the rally in in, uh, in Washington, where again you highlighted you highlighted Farrakhan. But then you looked at all the diverse representations of spiritual and religiously defined people there. Again, another really wonderful example. So again, just to say, what, what does it mean to disrupt those assumptions, but also to, what is the role of journalists and what is the role of academics and commentators to be able to look at those larger structural questions? What's motivating these issues? What's behind these questions? Instead of just pitting it against you know, Black Lives Matter and violent or nonviolent protests, as though those are equal, you know equal frameworks. Like without understanding what are the issues that have arisen that give this moment, it's not a moment itself. It's a long history of issues that are erupting and focused in particular moments. And how do we help all of us communicate that in a meaningful way, I think is a really critical uh, question for all of us, whatever our roles are. I'm going to open this up now, and please, um, again, uh, we've got people with mics. uh, I hope we have our microphone carriers. Let's jump in uh, for our mic people, uh, and uh, let's—Angela, go ahead,
6: let's start with you. Thank you. Um, I I would like to actually um, direct this—it's more of a structural question, and it it has to do with— Angela, I'm sorry, can you identify yourself? Yes, I'm Angela Zito, and I'm I'm from NYU, uh, the Center for Religion and Media. Um, It's a a question that, um, because I'd like to keep going for the day with um, uh, the question of how we can work together. And I'd like to draw attention to to, two things. One is writing and the other is archiving uh, what is written. And um, I was very struck by, uh, I think it was Nathan who said, Uh, the stories we see in the news that end up being part of our history (laughs) which I totally agree with except like news you know so we really have to expand the expand and 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 recognize the inadequacy of of the vocabulary to the new digital world that we actually live in which is a world of you know bigger access, more access for people who write, but also much more opportunity for people who write. And, and then to give, um, what, uh, a kind of weight to, the, to, to that writing by trying to archive it. And to archive it requires a commitment, an institutional commitment. And this is where uh, digging into the academy uh, as, a, as, a, as an institution for writers now. You know, so this is not me tramping on and saying goodbye journalism. We run an, a joint MA with the Jern School at NYU with Religious Studies, actually. You know? It's just saying that uh, we, we should leverage our, our resources to shelter our writing and to shelter writers. Uh, as much as we can, you know, reaching out in that way, so that this is really more a comment than a question. But I'd love to keep alive the issue of sh- our shared avocation of writing, instead of you know the journalism. Journalists need to go to academics as though we're just like a knowledge pool. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's actually really different from that now. I think right. you know great. in that sense. And this is a great chance for us to do that together. Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Others. Um, Steve.
7: Thanks. Thank, uh, thank you for this great panel. I'm Steve Prothero from Boston University. Um, I, was, I was able to talk with DeRay McKesson a few months ago, and I asked him this question about spirituality and religion and Black Lives Matter. And I just want to, um, to share that, just to push a little away from black church responses and things like that toward you know activists in the movement. And uh, you know, he said to me that, uh, he said, we'll never forget the black church t- didn't show up for us. You know. They didn't show up, and we'll never forget that. No matter how, you know, if they come around, that's cool, but, like, they weren't, they weren't there. And he told me a story about a group of protesters in front of a church with a sign, uh, Jesus was a protester. And the deacons from the church all came and stood up, and he, he walked right up to me, like, you know, two inches from my face, and he said, you know, they came right up, and they just stood right in front of us, and they told us to go home. Right. And so, so, you know, th- that... That's also an important part of the story. So, you know, Black Lives Matter as a spiritual movement—that may be the case—and and, and as as we will all agree, there's a diversity of, of views inside that movement. That's important to re- remember. But uh, it's also important to remember ways in which religious groups are, um, you know, barriers to the to this movement. And I think that's part of what reporters also need to pay attention to, right? Um, I think there's a tendency inside religious studies to think about religion largely, largely as a good thing, um, but uh, that's, not always, that's not always the case. Uh, and then, then after, as we were talking, he sort of shifted and he said, you know, the thing that's missing in the movement, he said, the thing that's missing is grace and glory. So here we have the person articulating more secular vision and then what's wrong with the movement? We're lacking grace and glory so i asked him about that and he said well great you know what's grace is you know the civil rights movement you have this idea like maybe we do 90 percent, and god does the other 10. um and he said you know we don't have that sense like we have to do everything and that's hard because you don't have a sense that you're being you're being pushed along you have a sense that you just have to do it and he said in terms of glory he said we don't really have a sense of what we want to accomplish you know what's What's the promised land for us? You know, we don't even have that language of promised land and we don't know exactly what we wanna do and that's a problem. We don't have you know, exact outcomes. So the lack of grace and glory in his view was, was both a strategic problem and also a motivational problem you know, where we've seen so many movements like Dave Chappelle's argument about the civil rights movement. You know, why couldn't white liberals uh, get rid of Jim Crow? Because they didn't have the protest uh, religion that African Americans uh, had and were willing to bring t- to that movement. One last point about this, we didn't hear No one mentioned the word sexuality. I think it's really important when you want to consider Black Lives Matter and spirituality and religion. One reason why some young people in the movement aren't that keen on the church is because they're like gay and queer and lesbians and, they're, and, and, and many of the leaders are. And so uh, they see the church as, uh, as their opponent. You know, anyway, I think that's part of the story.
0: Anyone want to respond to that on the panel? Or, or Angela's comment?
2: Okay. Um, I mean, I, I can attest that I heard from many people in the movement that exactly what you just said, that the reason they weren't part of a church is because they were transgender or gay. And uh, uh, the pastors who uh, the protest. Many of the protesters uh, did trust. There were pastors who were willing to say things like, you know, Jesus was a was a, was a queer man. Things like that. That would, you know, to some black pastors uh, in churches would, you know, be offensive. Yeah.
0: Uh, Eddie, please.
8: Eddie God from Princeton University. Um, I want to ask. Two part question, right? One is where the limitations of the race beat meet the religion beat, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And how certain kinds of ways in which we cover black movements, uh, black political activity, uh, where we try to look for the leader voice, the voice of the leader, uh, where we try to, where we emphasize spectacle all flattens out complexity and how that joins with the way in which we think about the limits (laughs) of covering religion. And particularly African American religion. So I want to think of, I, I want us to think a little bit about what happens when those two conjoin in interesting sorts of ways.
4: You know, I feel like we're having a conversation in 1992. Most newspapers don't have race beats, nor do they have religion beats. They have people who are bodies who they say you go here or you go there, and right. that's the best they can do. Right. So the fact that we're talking about journalism as if how it's practiced at the New York Times and the Washington Post is normative is crazy. That's so what, not the world of journalism okay, now. Okay, so let me,
8: let, me re, let me rephrase it then, Diane. So it's not about race beat and religion beat. It's about the ways in which people who write about race and people who write about religion duplicate. Right, and many, and many many
4: journalists states. have no background in anything, and their BAs who you know your students at Princeton, if you took one of them and said, you go right about this and you go right about that, what can you expect? Right. That's, who, that's who's in most newsrooms. Okay,
8: well, got it, so, okay, that's <laughs> <to> that <laughs>
4: one. No, it's, because I think that we're talking about something as if it's not what it actually is, and to right. ignore
8: But what I just heard from Lily, for example, about when she asked Adele the question, about what? About about the leaderlessness of the you know when you know the fact that it was kind of disorganized and, and, and that question actually reflects
4: mm-hmm. right
8: a set of assumptions that informed the race beat right. But right. Adele
4: works at a nonprofit. No, but that's
8: not what that's not what I'm asking though. Dine. What I'm asking is that the question itself reflected a certain kind a set of assumptions about the nature of black struggle where you have to go find the voice. Yes. that's how DeRay emerges. Yeah. Mm-hmm. as someone who articulate, so DeRay gives that, DeRay gave you that, 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 that spe- I went, so for example, when I first went to Ferguson to do my interviews for my book, I, went, I landed in metropolitan congregations, right, so I'm sitting there listening to Renita Lampkin, right, Lampkin, and a whole bunch of other church people talk about their churches as sanctuary spaces, right, so where the, where the actual protesters can, can retreat. Once they actually get gassed. Once they. Once they. Right. So I'm in the middle of this. Sekou helped me with this, and that's where I met Tracy Blackman. That's where I met a whole host of church folk who were involved. The 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 protest that that Deray was talking about happened a year later with Mao right? Millennial activists united with Alexis and Brittany, where they were protesting on Easter Sunday churches. Right? But at the same time, we saw ideological differentiation where DeRay's central, centrist right politics was actually being derided by folks who were actually being trained in the jungles of Brazil in Marxist thought. But because we're thinking about this in this really flat way, we don't see ideological differentiation. The 50 organizations that signed up, signed on for movements for Black Lives Matter, movements for Black Lives, the platform that Nathan there were 50 different organizations, Campaign Zero, DeRay's organization, did not sign on. <laughs> so, what we're seeing is ideological differentiation. But we can't get at it because there's this assumption. Whether journalism, the, the boardroom has changed or not, it seems to me there are a series of assumptions about the nature of black protest, the nature of the function of black religious institutions and black protest that still obtain. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get.
4: Right, but I think that's not necessarily an issue of journalism. It's an epistemic issue that you address in higher education, or, or, or you address in platforms other than legacy mainstream journalism, which doesn't have a vested interest in that kind of
8: complexity. That kind
4: of complexity. That's why, thank God for places like The Conversation or Imminent Frame or Religion Dispatches or Religion and Politics that want to go into that kind of depth. because
8: So, so I'm sorry. Just, so when we look at Black Lives Matter, for example, the Movement for Black Lives, right? part of what we're witnessing right now is ideological differentiation. Right? So people are actually finding their feet in very different ways. And so the Brittany Packnets, whom I love, and, and the Netta's and the DeRays, identifying themselves with a certain kind of politics, so much so that at Howard, at Howard University, Brittany is represented as what we ought to be doing. But at the same time, you have BYP 100, you have Project Nia, you have Asada's Daughters, you have, I can begin to lay out, and these are folks who are imagining a politics that go beyond just simply police, you know, protesting police brutality, that's speaking directly to Nathan's point. And the problem is that we're trying to look for a neat narrative about yes. what this is. And that seems to be familiar to me mm-hmm. in terms of how we've reported black struggle in this country. Right,
4: and now there are alternatives, and you can write an article for The Atlantic about that. That's what you can do. You can do
5: it. So I think I, I hear, I think I hear your, your frustration there. I think a lot of this, um, you know, the, the reporters or even the columnists who are having more of a say in, in what they write, um, are still butting up against um, editors who are typically um, older and whiter and male um, who are not <laughs> thinking about these narratives in a complicated way. Um, the way that some of our language that uh, that you find in mid-sized papers about the Black Lives Matter protests today so clearly echoes what they were saying about outside agitators and that sort of thing um, in the 60s that it is, it is shameful. It is shameful. But I think it's um, a reflection of our... Well for' ignorance about history, right if you were just familiar with how these movements um, have worked in the past you wouldn't be distilling them to a single flat narrative too i
3: I think, okay. I think that point is really important as somebody who has butted heads with editors on these very questions I mean they're, they're, you, you can't say that there's a rule book but there's there's a set of frames that an editor at a, 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 a a major media outlet is going to have about what people are going to tolerate and what they aren't, right? And, you know, the story that I was describing ended up being about, you know, a strong male leader, right? Uh, uh, when I could have written a story about Alandria Williams, for instance, who's an organizer at the Highlander Center and is really orchestrating this, uh, uh, you know, disabled black woman who who um, is just... Who was who building do, doing incredible work building this network of new southern cooperatives, making uh, cross uh, uh, race alliances, you know, explicitly building a movement around poor black people and poor white people around economic cooperation. Um, really amazing stuff. and um, yet we don't see this. and I, I I think these last two comments have been so helpful. That point about queerness is something that, that has been Uh, So critical and and for for all the, I I think Reverend Seku represents this paradox really interestingly and I'm glad that the kind of tension about his role has come up because on the one hand he knows that he's a black man who the news is going to turn to as an authority on, uh, a, a black man with a collar, right, as an authority um and then he's also somebody who every time he gets a mic tries to emphasize the queerness of this of this movement mm-hmm. but it it goes back so far to the to the way in which uh, uh move, black struggle has always been cleaved right i mean we, we see martin luther king as the kind of civil rights leader we don't see the jobs part of the march for jobs and justice we don't see the 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 his his work on labor and on on militarism right i mean that there's this there's this grand american narrative that wants to cleave uh movements for uh uh for uh Black humanity in this country, uh, and allow certain parts of them to come forward and uh, uh, treat certain parts of them as if they don't exist.
4: I think Nathan's being polite. I think I would call it the structural racism of the media. The reason I left the Baltimore Sun happily was the last story I did there was a huge takeout on Frank Reed. Do you know Frank Reed? Yeah, he was a he was a stepbrother of. Kurt Schmoke, who was the mayor of Baltimore at that time, and he was a act, very activist um, A.M.E. church. Um, that was supposed to be our Sunday magazine story, and we spent a lot of time working on it and honing it. And it was in it, back in those days, you could really do an in-depth embedded story, and we had you know gorgeous photos of Frank and you know dashikis and colorful colorful church regalia. I woke up that Sunday morning, and instead of seeing Frank on the cover of the Baltimore Sun, I saw a picture of people in their bed sleeping. And they, they had decided that the cover story was going to be on sleep. Now, sleep is not a news story. It's not a breaking story. It's not about power. But it's also not about activist black religious leaders. They changed that story at the last minute because the publisher wanted did not want to have a a strong black man on the cover of the magazine. So yes, that was a while ago, but I don't think things have changed that much since then. I think it's very hard to get sophisticated stories about power alternatives that challenge the status quo into the legacy mainstream media. The nice way of saying it is that they have frames that they adhere to, (laughs) but they have corporate masters who want the world to proceed in certain ways. This drives reporters crazy, because it suggests they don't have autonomy. And I apologize. On individual levels, reporters do have autonomy. They can pick and choose. But they know what stories their editors will and will not take. And certain stories are beyond the pale.
0: Okay. thank you, thank you. Let's over here at the far end.
3: Wait, wait. Can I just
1: say one Adele. I just want to say one oh, thing. Oh, I'm sorry, Adele, in I'm sorry. response to Eddie God's comment, the complexity of what you just described, there is such complexity about both the Black Lives Matter movement and about the quote-unquote black church and about religion in general, and to get people who are not as schooled as some of the scholars in this room to break that down into 800 to 1,000 yes. words. Yes, yes. It's, mm-hmm. it's, somebody used the word impossible earlier. I, obviously, it's not completely impossible, but when you... What you see is just the tip of the iceberg of what we could be writing, but we just cannot do it all. And we can't understand it all if we don't get help from other people. Just as an example
2: of that, I mean, even, say, the Nation of Islam story that I did, I had to go out on my own time and do that at Mm -hmm. night. And that was as the religion reporter at the paper. So, I mean...
0: Wow, Wow, that's really... Okay, thank you. Uh, Here in the corner, thank you.
9: Uh, hi, I'm Cristela Guerra. I, uh, I work for the Boston Globe. So if I could just speak in defense of legacy mainstream media for a sec,
8: um,
9: I would say we're, we can always do better, but when have they not said that? And I say this as a person who's queer, who's Latina, who came from Florida a year and a half ago to work at the Boston Globe. Um, when have the editors not looked the way that they do? Like, This, I mean, and I say this as a person who's mentoring young journalists of color who know how they feel, who who see the passion, who want to see them rise through these ranks, knowing that one day mainstream legacy media might be BuzzFeed, might be Vox. You know, (laughs) I'm not going to sit here and defend certain practices. I've encountered the things you're talking about. But I would say I'm, I'm a GA reporter. Um, I'm 31, I'm very young. Um, I was raised Evangelical Christian, uh, and then I came out and everybody hated me. So um, it, it's one of those things where you, oh, we all have our backgrounds, we all have our stories, we all have implicit bias. Um, it's an issue. I don't think we have enough training in newsrooms about that before we're tackling some of these things. And we have 800 to 1,000 words, mainly. But I would say yes, um, I think training is crucial I think we need more of it. I think we need more people of color in management. Um, I'm, we need to subvert the system, but it shouldn't just be underground. It should be all of us recognizing that diversity is necessary in a newsroom like the Boston Globe, like the New York Times, like the Washington Post. And I like alternative media. I think we're all doing the best job we can recognizing that identity politics is sort of at the forefront of things right now. We're being foisted into these situations where we're being told, write about race or give me a good story. It's not just, you know, God, I really hope there's like a triple homicide. We gotta fill the front page. Mm -hmm. Like, there's always a story about race, about gender, about, you know, religion. Religion plays a role in every single story. I always wanted to be a religion journalist, but every time there's a shooting in Boston, the next day we're talking to pastors. Mm -hmm. For some reason we're going to Dorchester to talk to the same guy, asking him how he thinks he can help youth. I I just Mm -hmm. think we're there already. We just have to find a new way to tell the narrative. And and I would think like, I know a lot of people like me, and a lot of folks are going to retire soon, either because they're being pushed out, they're being bought out, they're being laid off. I mean, it's rough. It's rough in these woods, you know what I'm saying? But I, I, think, I think, in general, I have a lot of hope. I've been doing this for 10 years. I mean, I like when I see Beyonce and all of a sudden people are writing about Orishas, you know? I like when Castro dies and people are trying to reach out to Babanaos in, in Miami. Like, there's religion in every single story if we do it the right way. And then it could be super focused, but I would say also our job is to look at the broader picture, which is in the end what the editors are always going to go for. I don't, I'm don't, i not going to demonize my bosses for knowing how to sell a, p- a newspaper, especially because we're not selling any right now anyway. <laughs> you know, like, we're, we're going to do the best job we can. We're going to do spotlight stories. And in the end, you know, they're still going to send me out to that you know carbon monoxide death that I went to earlier this, this, this week and know that, those people are probably going to church that night. I know that these, where these people go when they when they suffer a tragedy. I've covered enough tragedies, but I would say in the end there is a spiritual string and a religious string that runs through everything that we do.
0: Great. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna unfortunately I'm gonna have to jump in here. We're almost out of time. Um, so what I'd like to do. Because again, we're having this is a long conversation. This is just the beginning of what I hope is a long conversation, not just today but ongoing. So, what I'd like to do is ask those who still have questions to quickly ask your question. I'm going to call on anyone to just get your question out there so we have it in the sphere. So, if you have a question, but again, I'm going to cut you off. It has to be a question and short. Okay. So, please. Thank you. I know you're someone I know has been trying to get in, so I'm glad.
7: I guess the one of the words that I would like, and some of you have touched on this. Can you identify yourself, sir? I'm Larry Aronson. I'm a retired teacher from Cambridge Virginia Latin High School. Thank you. Who had trained in journalism. That gives me some legitimacy. I'm a person of faith. Um, the bugaboo word of capitalism. When we get to all these things people not wanting to talk about, corporate press, and also the fact that these movements occupy Black Lives Matter and now Standing Rock are, by structure, leaderless and fluid. And complicated, okay. right? And they are anti capitalist in many ways.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, yes, go ahead, right here. Sorry, I had my hand up. That's before. okay? Uh, Great. So I had a similar. Uh, identify yourself, please. Oh, sorry, Rosalind Lapierre. I'm a research associate at the Women's Studies and Religion program here thank at you, HDS. Anna. And um, my question was related to Standing Rock as well. Um, but I was going to bring it back to um, Black Lives Matter, is do you think that there is something larger afoot here um, in terms of this idea of, quote, unquote, spiritual but not religious, mm-hmm. in terms of what um, young people are interested in doing of, of sort of finding protest as their religion? Mm-hmm. So that's the question. Thank you. Thanks so much. And Chris here. <coughs> front, front row here.
10: I'm Chris Walton. I'm editor of UU World Magazine. That's a denominational quarterly. And uh, so I'm in the role of editor trying to help writers and reporters uh, meet sources and also ask questions that will generate good stories. And uh, the short observation is that spiritual and religion are both categories. They're abstractions, and you can't Easily go up to someone and say tell me what's spiritual about why you're involved in this and get much that's Mm -hmm. good But and it takes so much time to build up the relationship with the source That you can actually see and then describe Well, this is what they said. This is what they did and now I know how to tell that as a spiritual or religious story so what I'm looking for is uh, what are questions to help reporters learn to ask that would bring out some of these things we would call spiritual or religious, um, I'm looking for those questions, because asking them what's spiritual about it or what's religious about it rarely gets there. Great,
0: thank you, Chris. Okay, Um, back here. Thank you again quickly. Identify yourself, and then Susan Lloyd, and then I think that'll be our last question. I'm
10: just right in this field, and I want to put a question to uh, Ms. Winston that currently what you see is content providers for from massive different media, most of which is younger people. Is there an opportunity now for younger people who are involved in these areas to more or less gather, more or less get together and use the Twitter, use the Facebook, use the things that we can use that are outside of this kind of control that we're hearing about. Is this a possibility now with the new modern social media?
0: Great. Thank you. And Susan Lloyd, thank you. Last Uh, Susan Lloyd McGarry, Harvard FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. And I'm also a member of Friends Meeting Cambridge Quakers. So I have just two points. One, my whole entry into Black Lives Matter has really been through the religious community and uh, a lot through the activism of Surge. I wonder about what you guys you know, think and hear about that. And then a place where black, polit- um, black political movements have met, I think, is in mass incarceration, where black churches have been in huge leadership and wh- which Black Lives Matter is also involved in. So I think about what, what do you guys see as the intersection of that? Great, good, great connections to help us uh, identify. A couple uh logistic questions before we thank our panelists and take a break. Logistically, the, all the bathrooms that matter are downstairs, <laughs> <laughs> so you have to go through, go to the hallway and go down the stairs and there's a, a bank of, uh, of restrooms to the left of the stairs. Yes, to the left of the stairs. Also, uh, we will convene again uh, and will be prompt because we want to make sure to uh, not get too far behind today. We'll convene again at 11.10 um, for our next panel uh, on evangelicals and Trump. And I want to ask us to please give another round of applause to our wonderful panel.